0: You're listening listening to New Voices in Philosophy, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project.
1: This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions.
0: I'm Olivia Branscombe, and I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, Haley and I have a very special conversation with Elena Gauthier-Mamaril, a philosopher and podcaster who hosts the Philosophy Casting Call Podcast. Philosophy Casting Call shines a spotlight on thinkers, topics, and themes that are underrepresented in academic philosophy, which listeners will recognize as a mission dear to our own podcast as well. We highly recommend giving Philosophy Casting Call and Elena's other podcasts a listen. While our conversation here focuses around the theme of podcasting as scholarship, we reflect on a range of topics throughout this episode, including getting started in podcasting, the differences between general audience podcasting and podcasting for scholarly audiences, how podcasting has changed our work in philosophy, and how each of our podcast journeys brought us to where we are today. We hope you enjoy.
2: Elena, do you want to start by talking a little bit about your... Hi, your my podcast. name is Elena gauthier mamorel my pronouns are she and her, and I am the host and producer of Philosophy Casting Call, as well as two other non-philosophy related podcasts. And I'm currently employed by the Center for Biomedicine, Self and Society at the Usher Institute at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland.
0: Wonderful. I'm so curious about your non-philosophy oriented (laughs) podcast. So maybe we can hear a little bit about that in a minute. But um, first, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about how you got involved with podcasting, and then how podcasting relates to your other work in philosophy. So there
2: are two factors, main factors that led me to start Philosophy Casting Call specifically. One of them was I was at the end of my PhD and I was finding it very frustrating that the people I was engaging with in my own scholarship and just for context, I do a kind of heretical relational metaphysics <laughs> that bridges like 17th century Spinoza with feminist, contemporary feminist approaches to bioethics. <laughs> and so the kinds of scholars that I would engage with, I found tremendously interesting but they weren't being uplifted within my own circles of history of philosophy so i felt like i wanted to have conversations with those people and the second factor is we went into lockdown during the covid pandemic (laughs) and it sounded like a great time to start a new project uh so i really went into it with the purpose of saying hey i want to have these discussions in a way i'm already in dialogue with these people through my research why not let them know and say hey i think you're awesome i think the work you're doing is important i want to hear more and i love listening to podcasts myself so it's a medium that i personally really enjoy consuming i suppose And I feel that it's the right way to strike the balance between learning something new, discovering a new topic, and really experiencing someone else's knowledge in a more intimate way. So it was a combination of I love podcasting as a medium. And my project was to have conversations with people that I personally find cool. And hopefully other people would also agree that their work is worthwhile. So are you a self-taught podcaster then? So I am 100%. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> how did you pick up the skills? how did you get started on on
2: the podcast once you had this idea? So I picked up the book so you want to be a podcaster by Kristen Meinzer, host of Buy the Book podcast, and that was actually really helpful. I also kind of I looked a bit on the internet and things and I knew okay my partner will either love or hate that I mentioned this but he had a podcast when he was 18 about Japanese pop music and so I that was OG podcasting so I knew that it didn't have to be super complicated so the barrier to entry wasn't too mm-hmm. bad I guess the highest, the most difficult thing was learning how to edit, but I was also um, lucky to find another podcaster who's also a linguist. So within academic podcasting, and she was running a free workshop and the trade-off was we would record and learn about podcasting. And then that episode would end up on her show. So, I mean, her partner worked for the BBC and audio and I had like intensive like feedback sessions and things. And so I kind of looked up for those opportunities. But otherwise, it was just me frantically Googling, why is Audacity not working?
0: And like the technological skill set going along with editing is definitely something that you have to acquire when you go into podcasting. But I think that in a way... Being in trained in academic philosophy also prepares you really well for the editing practice because so much of it is about thinking about content and clarity and what information you need to keep in for the message to make itself heard. And, you know, maybe I'll, excuse me, get into this a little bit more when I talk about my podcasting background, but there's so many, there's such a range of choices you can make. Like you can be very minimal in your editing and just kind of, you know, Get rid of some of the weird background noises, like my whining dog, which is a perpetual issue <laughs> in our recording sessions. Um, to you know, really intervening in sentence structure and things like mm-hmm. that, and there's different ethical considerations and considerations and meaning that go into that. But um, you know, different projects have different needs around those methods. But anyway, I bring that up just to say that. Although there is like a barrier to entry in some ways for just the technology and the skills there. In some other ways, I feel like coming from philosophy, you're like very well suited to think about editing and the different like conceptual things that go into the editing process.
2: Definitely. I feel like the philosophy background merged with my experience as a podcast listener. So I know like what turns me off. I still had a steep learning curve and I'm still learning how to have that engaging conversation yet make it accessible to more than my own brain (laughs) so I mean critiques I've had from other podcasters is like well you kind of have to know philosophy to listen to your podcast and I was like that's fair I never went in wanting to do a philosophy 101 podcast that was not my project and then not started me thinking about what if it's okay to have other philosophers or even other academics as your audience and I started thinking about can podcasting be scholarship not only in kind of quote-unquote public scholarship meant to translate academic discourse into terms that a wider public can understand which I do believe is very important and A good thing that podcasts can do, but I was like, what if I could speak to other philosophers? Because that's really what I wanted to do. So this idea of like maybe it's okay if my audience is smaller, if it's more niche in a way, I can still be doing the work of diversifying the voices I amplify, diversifying the topics covered, maybe making an effort. My second season, I made an effort to have a guest from different countries and continents, if possible. So engaging directly with people living and working in the Global South, for example, as opposed to just having guests from the US or from Europe. And I think there are still things that I can do within those parameters without having the maybe commercial capitalist mindset of like, how do you reach like the greatest audience and how do you monetize your podcast?
1: No, and it, I think that's such an important point because it is something as you listen through your own episodes, right? That that becomes such a careful balancing act. The more people you're trying to reach, the, I mean, obviously the harder it can be, but but also, right, like it's, you, you maybe lose some engaging parts of a conversation when you have to pause that conversation to say, okay, so like this term is described, as you know, or something like that. And, and that can kind of take away from, yeah, hearing about people's, real experiences the the nuances that go into things that um, can ma- may manifest themselves as, as more technical discussions um, and it's it's you know I think it's real it's a real choice point um, and it's I think it's great and it's it sounds super interesting that you recognize that and then you made made that choice you know that you you actually have kind of put that that work into into practice
0: totally I and mean, we I was talking a minute ago about like the things from academic philosophy that are continuous with the skills that go into making a podcast but i think that sometimes what people who are like philosophers or other academics who undertake podcasting as like a side project don't realize is that it also has its own skills that you have to think about and one of those things is like who's your audience you know and you can decide that your audience is other academics you can decide that your audience, your ideal audience, your target audience is not other academics, but that is a choice that one makes when thinking about a podcast and trying to be intentional in the construction of the project. And if you don't do those things, it starts to just be like, I'm just recording myself talking about stuff. <laughs> and another thing that
2: comes from like being trained in philosophy is that you know when you ask me how did you Get into the tech side of actually doing the podcast. I think, well, I'm trained in research, right? So then I wanted to do this and I researched and I did it. But I think the important clause in that is you actually have to do it. So I may have had like an idea, for example, for my audience before I started, but it's only as I did it, as I saw like who was listening, but also how much time it took me to actually produce the podcast and do this. And then kind of being able to reevaluate my priorities and what I wanted to do. So I think that's something that, in a way, all academics do, but we need to reflect on that sometimes the research part is actually doing the research. And in this case, it's actually recording the interview, editing and putting it out there. It's not just having the idea of like, oh, I have all the skills. It's actually, you'd learn things through the process. And that's what I love about podcasting a scholarship is when you discuss scholarship, sometimes you find out different research questions as you're talking to someone and you're capturing that in live, quote unquote.
0: Exactly. I love that. And you put that so well. And that's actually... It seems like some of those questions are just podcasting questions, but actually those are also questions for all of our scholarship that we need to reflect on more um, intentionally. And sometimes it is only through sort of shifting perspective on like what the research process is, what the scholarship process is, that those questions can come to the fore. Because even when you're writing for an academic journal, there's an implied audience and implied, you know, there are conventions that come out of that, that you don't think about or really pay attention to when you're just operating within that kind of conventional narrow mode of philosophy scholarship. And so intentionally choosing a different mode of scholarship can be so illuminating um, by kind of, yeah, pushing you to be more reflective about otherwise kind of taken for granted elements of the scholarly process.
1: I think, I mean, that reflection that you've both put your finger on so nicely is, really concrete when you're doing a podcast, right? Like you hear yourself when you're listening back to it, you hear yourself, you hear what you said, you hear the way you were engaging with someone, you hear how they engaged back with you. Uh, and again, maybe this is something I can talk more about when I talk about my podcasting process. But one thing I found so interesting about doing it is the way it's both changed and just like made me understand the way I have conversations, the way I think and talk about philosophy. So I would love to hear, Elena, if you have found this and then both how it's affected the way you podcast, which you've kind of touched on already, but also the way
2: it's affected your scholarship and and the way you conduct your research. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a very empowering process because a lot of scholarship, not only in philosophy, but I suppose in academia in general, is... you you know, you interact with your peers like a couple of times a year at a conference or, you know, maybe your department has seminars, but, you know, you cast a wider net rarely. And I know some people who I admire that in their teaching practice will actually encourage their students to reach out to living authors whose papers have struck them or inspired them or helped them along in their thinking. And I think like, yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't we reach out to the people who wrote things that are so important to our own research and so actually engaging with people yeah it gave me a sense of community where maybe i i found lacking in my own like geographical area and or within the like, very narrow confines of english-speaking spinoza scholars and I don't think I can take that out of the context of finishing my PhD, which as anyone who's ever done one knows is an exercise in jumping through hoops. So I felt that once I finished my PhD, I was like, now I can write how I want. (laughs) And I think doing the podcast helped that. And I, you know, submitted a chapter to an anthology that really is written very differently than anything I had written in the PhD. And I think that having those discussions on the podcast and being exposed in such a personal way to the processes and the experiences of different philosophers really gave me kind of permission to experiment with different kinds of philosophical writing. And so Haley, how, How did you get involved with your podcast? I'm Haley Brennan. Uh, I am a
1: PhD candidate in philosophy at Princeton University, and I am a co-host and co-producer of the Extending New Narratives podcast, um, New Voices in Philosophy, uh, with Olivia Branscombe. So I guess I started podcasting in my master's degree. Uh, I was a research assistant for the original version of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project, which was then just called the New Narratives Project. Uh, and it's pretty, you know, like straightforward origin story, I guess. Uh, so, Lisa Shapiro, one of the the principal investigators for the project, and, and my RA supervisor, asked if I would put together a pro- podcast as part of this research work. Uh, I think, I guess, just reflecting on the conversation we've been having so far about audiences, there was maybe made explicit, but certainly an implicit thought that the creation of a podcast would help make the project accessible to to a more general audience, or maybe at least just a wide range of philosophers. But I think there was, there was definitely the thought that it would be accessible to, to non-philosophers. Uh, and I, I was really excited about that idea. I mean, this is part of the reason, if not the reason I went to grad school, was this sort of project, the project of expanding and making accessible the history of philosophy. Um, I felt and I still feel very passionate about that. So, yeah, I mean, I just sort of set off... On learning how to podcast, I did a lot of Googling, found some software. Uh, I should say that I didn't. I wasn't on my own in doing this research. Uh, I received a lot of support and training from SFU, where I did my masters. Simon Fraser University. They have a really wonderful digital humanities project there. Uh, so they did. I did some tutorials through the digital humanities project, and oh god, I've forgotten her name, which is terrible. But there was a professor who I want to say was in the French department who had a podcast of her own who sat down with me and just explained, you know, sort of where to look, what sort of software, well, what audacity was, what kind of things I should have in mind when create created a podcast. So she was really helpful too in getting going. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as you both know, right, even, even with any sort of advice, there's still a lot of, of bumping around in the dark. Um, in the time I was at SFU so it was it was only two years for the master's program I, I only had a chance to make a couple episodes and you know my guests were excellent um I really like listening to those interviews back because I think they're, they're fantastic to listen to from the interviewee perspective um I don't I didn't really fully feel like I had a a good grip on the medium I think there were a lot of opportunities you know for developing it and so yeah I mean I guess I was really excited um sort of serendipitous i had been thinking about this a little bit in the pandemic just lots of time to reflect thinking about you know like what a good opportunity that was or could have been to make something really interesting uh and to do a kind of work that i'm excited about but but hadn't like i said fully sort of explored and and that was when lisa contacted me which i guess was i guess two years ago now and asked if i would want to start the podcast up again um, so I was put in touch with Olivia, and yeah, it's been, you know, it's been real. It's been so much fun just being able to can fully dive into all all the learning curves that come with putting together a podcast, and then thinking thinking much more carefully now. Now that you know, I've done more than just get my toes wet, get my toes in. I'm mixing my metaphors all over the place. But now that we're sort of, we have this team and we're fully on board and making this happen. There's just been a lot more of the medium that. I've been able to explore and, and I really enjoy
2: that. So do you know Hannah McGregor from SFU?
1: I don't know.
2: Yeah. So I came across their work and I think they're from an English department, but they have a really cool like seminars that are online on YouTube, basically about podcasting a scholarship and um, what's the name? Wilfrid Laurier University. In Ontario, has started a process of peer reviewed academic podcasts. And Hannah's was like her feminism one was like the first one to be reviewed. They also did like a Harry Potter one, kind of like using Harry Potter as an intro into literary criticism. But yeah, I thought this was really cool. And Hannah was saying that there's something about podcasting that celebrates the dilettante aspect of doing scholarship. That kind of like, where we have like a cup of tea or a pint of beer, we're just like chatting with our friends and being like, I don't really understand what's going on. Like, why does this matter? What are we doing with our lives? But also like the working out of ideas. And I thought that was really striking. And someone else within the panel was saying, we actually started recording our pre-recording sessions because that was when we were actually like trying out ideas. And so this idea of podcasting as maybe a form of transparent scholarship or kind of giving a peek into what research actually looks like. It's not only presenting a polished edited version of a talk at a conference, for example, although it can be that. But it's also kind of like, what does podcasting mean? How does it relate to philosophy? Kind of what we're doing right now. Like this idea of like, can we capture those moments that otherwise would just happen behind closed doors?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this like one of the most maybe exciting or interesting parts of doing a podcast for me has been sort of like celebrities, they're just like us feeling, um, which is that, you know, getting to talk to really established scholars who, when you get them in conversation, and you're sitting down with them, are like, oh, yeah, actually, I'm also doing exactly what you're doing, which is, you know, for people who aren't in grad school, (laughs) (laughs) throwing things at the wall and seeing with sticks and getting frustrated and having, you know, days where this doesn't work, or then having an idea that you completely backtrack on, or having a really exciting idea and pursuing that just all of these things that That it can feel like you're the only one in the world doing them when you're sitting alone at your desk are revealed to be really commonplace uh and i think that that's that's an incredibly lovely thing about the medium uh, that it makes public these conversations that people are having um but then when you you can put these conversations out to a general audience a wider audience i think it hopefully can help more people realize have this feeling that i've been having I will I will say that I really love this idea of peer review for a podcast. I think that is a, a fantastic idea because, you know, again, like, we have, you know, I was talking about, you've been talking about it can maybe be a little bit like it's a, a messy process and can feel mm-hmm. like an individual learning curve. And it just like all our research can be helped by having access to people say, Hey, this is what's working and this is what's not
2: and for what I heard, they were very intentional about this idea of peer-reviewing a podcast and what that would look like. So I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I like podcasts is because it's different than reading an article. Like, it's a different way to experience the topic. And so there was a concern about, is peer-reviewing a podcast going to make it boring? Going to make it, like, take all the fun out of podcasting, out of listening to podcasts? And they really for example, made an effort to, A, find reviewers that were invested and or interested in um, public-facing scholarship. So already, like, you make sure you're not looking at people who are like, what is a podcast? And then they included kind of the audience of the podcast as part of the review. So they had questions... And they polled the audience and had surveys. So you had like the professional scholars who were evaluating the podcast, but they took into account the actual audience's experience into doing that as well. So they really had to think about what is peer review for? What do we mean when we peer review? Who are the peers when you're talking about a public facing output? And I think that's really exciting.
0: And I think it's a really good way to lay the groundwork for recognizing podcasting as scholarship in an institutional way. I mean, one thing that I've thought about in connection with this question of podcast as scholarship is like, okay, if we consider podcasting to be scholarship, then shouldn't it count towards your tenure case when you're in a tenure track position? Like, shouldn't it count as research production Uh in a way that can be used to attest to your activity in the field as a scholar and one really good way to do that is to try to develop a peer review system that allows people to speak to the quality of your scholarship as a podcaster just the way that they can do that with other kinds of scholarship but it does raise a lot of questions about like how to do that well with podcasting since it's not the same thing as a journal article or book but yeah I just think that like trying to develop a good or a functional Peer review process for podcasting is going to be really important in the larger project of figuring out how to count podcasting toward things like tenure cases and stuff like that, which is like desirable because, as has been coming across in both of your contributions, I guess, to this conversation so far, is like the amount of time and effort that goes into creating a podcast. It's not just Thinking about the topics and having the conversation, there's so much behind the scenes, so much labor that goes into these projects. And um, in many cases, it is like a labor of love, so to speak, but also you want it to count and be recognized as like real professional labor because it is that.
2: And I'm really lucky that in my current role, my job does see it as such. And I don't want to say they allow me, but yes. Technically, they do allow me to uh, create. I want to create a podcast mini series. I'm looking at long COVID as it inter- intersects with disability and like the history of pandemics turning into endemics. And I pitched the idea of doing a mini series. So, like, a set number of episodes and doing one of my research outputs that way. And they were just really excited by that. It was actually a part of my interview and they were really excited by the fact that I was pitching podcasting as a research output. Now, other places might not be as excited, so it it really depends. But I do think that we are going into a direction where there are more academic spaces that are willing to take the gamble on that. And they are a reason that, you know, they're subsidizing my adobe audition subscription so i can up my editing game and i'll be doing philosophy casting call season three during my work hours which is amazing (laughs) so yeah so i think that's what we should be aiming for as you were saying olivia like yes we there's a lot of pressure sometimes to create impact And especially in philosophy, we're like, what does that mean? When I study like someone who died 400 years ago and then we're like, oh, well, podcasting is cool right now. Why don't you do that? And it's so much work. I just want everyone to understand that (laughs) we all love it. We all think it's important and valuable, but it's a lot of work. And so So to have someone (laughs) to say like, yes, you can use part of your nine to five to work on this is essential.
1: Yeah. And it's an essential part, too, of, I think, at least, making sure the field that all three of us love stays alive and interesting. And really, it's podcasting as scholarship means that scholarship, you know, extends and adapts to the times and the ways that people do research and think. And I think the more that we can, you know, again, to, to throw my voice other than just laughs and nods of approval in the background into the mixed <laughs> podcasting, it's a lot of work, right, to, to If we can recognize that that can take up as much time or can, you know, be integrated into your research in such a way that you don't feel like you are torn between writing academic articles and producing a podcast or doing other public facing or digital scholarship the better.
0: Haley, I'm curious. So we heard from Elena a little bit about how podcasting has impacted like her writing. And I'm just wondering if you've experienced that. You were talking about how a big thing that you've learned about yourself as a philosopher from being involved in podcasts is like how you talk and kind of think in dialogue with others. And I'm curious if that's also reflected back in any way onto your writing practice.
1: Absolutely. I think that uh, I spend a lot of time, I work on the self in you know various dimensions. I spend a lot of time thinking about the self. I spend a lot of time thinking about myself. Uh, and and I very much noticed that doing the podcast and, and having these conversations, as I said, has impacted the way both I write and I think, right? So I think I, Elena, Elena mentioned this, that it's made me think a lot more about the different ways of approaching a topic, approaching a historical figure, and, and, to be more confident, I think, in saying, hey, like, this is just, I, I read this through that lens, might as well write that down, you know, like, let's, let's just see if that has any traction for anyone else, because these conversations have shown me that people have been doing this and have had, you know, success or their own interest and their own passion kind of realized in doing that, but also just listening to myself back hearing the way I talk, hearing the way I kind of think made out loud has then made me more conscious about it. I think in sometimes in, you know, uncomfortable ways where I'm like, oh my God, why did I, why do I say that word so much? But, but more, more importantly than that, I think made me more conscious about it when I'm trying to express a thought both in writing and in speech. Trust it. So yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's been really instrumental for my work um, in a range, I think, of, of interesting ways. I think it maybe it's time to, to put the spotlight on you, Olivia, uh, and to get you to talk about your process of coming to podcasting a bit.
0: Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm Olivia Branscom. I am a postdoctoral lecturer at the University of Oklahoma right now, but I did my PhD at Columbia and that was where I started working on the Extending New Narratives podcast with Haley. My... Way into podcasting goes back to my undergrad, actually. I was a double major in philosophy and studio art as an undergraduate, and one of the media that I got really interested in was sound. I also worked at the radio station at my undergrad institution and um, have been really into music and radio for my whole life, basically. And I started to think about the intersections between studio art, performance art, music, and radio. And at the time, podcasting, you know, this was like a couple years before Serial, podcasting was gaining steam and kind of becoming something that was breaking out as a really popular medium beyond just The like YouTube podcasting platforms that were existing before that, so I started to think about podcasting as a way of bringing together a lot of these interests of mine. I also, so like through my my involvement at the student run radio station at my undergrad institution, I just started doing some audio production. So that was how I like learned how to edit. Um, But it wasn't until Grad school, I guess. I mean, it's funny. It's interesting to to think about this. I haven't really thought about like the long, (laughs) the long history of my podcasting career, I guess, before, but it's really, really, really tied. It's really intertwined for me with the experience that I had of like deciding to pursue philosophy and figuring out that philosophy was like a tenable, sustainable space for me, which for a long time I wasn't sure about and was very, very, very doubtful of. And um, I was really insecure within philosophy for a long time, not because I was questioning whether or not I enjoyed doing philosophy, but I was questioning whether or not like what I considered to be enjoyable philosophy that was productive and um, kind of, you know, life-sustaining for me in a way. Like, I wasn't sure if that was what people in academic philosophy considered to be philosophy. And I was like, well, I can't stop doing this thing that I think is philosophy. It's kind of like how I live and think and exist as a person. (laughs) Wouldn't it be cool if that like did line up with academic philosophy and this could be something I could pursue and um try to explore as a profession but then i was like oh my god there seems to be this tension and one way that i coped with that was by finding out about this movement i guess you can call it that to rethink the history of philosophy and have just a more critical and humble attitude towards canonical stories of historical importance and philosophical importance. And finding out that there were people who were doing that made me feel like, okay, philosophy could be a place for me, academic philosophy could be a place for me to exist and pursue this practice that's so important to me. Um, And I was really interested in accessibility and in making philosophy, making clear through my own philosophical practice that... Philosophy is a space for everyone, and that everyone has t- an inclination or a tendency or a glimmer of philosophical reflection in them. I just think that that's true about human beings, and I think that philosophy should encourage that and stoke that in people. So I was invested in accessibility. I promise this is all going to come together. Um, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I was. I was doing this this sound art radio stuff. I was like thinking about my place in philosophy and thinking about accessibility within philosophy. I was thinking about like new ways of doing the history of philosophy and telling stories within philosophy. And um, I just started a PhD after a few years of being like, you know, really, really wrestling with these questions about whether or not philosophy as a professional space was for me. And I saw just on the like Columbia philosophy listserv, this request for applicants for a producer role. On a podcast that somebody in the English and Comparative Literature department was running. So, this is Milan Terlunen. He um, is the founder, host, and one of the producers of this podcast called How to Read. And the point of How to Read is actually not didactic, which is funny. Like the (laughs) title makes it sound like it is. But the point of it is actually quite the opposite it's, um, you know, bite-sized, accessible conversations with scholars that are like explicitly intended to be pitched at a wider audience, but without sacrificing sophistication, basically. So it's a kind of lofty goal. And I saw that and I was like, oh, wait, this is the perfect opportunity for me because it brings together this strand of my philosophical practice that is thinking about accessibility. It brings that together with my interest in audio media. And as you all have been saying, podcasting is this really accessible genre. It is something that you can do while you're driving to get groceries. It's something that you can do while you're walking your dog. You can listen to a podcast and learn about new ideas in a way that's like much easier to integrate into your daily life than like sitting down and reading an academic journal article. So it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to try to bring together these different interests of mine.
2: I'm so glad you said that because I relate to basically everything you just said (laughs) in terms of I felt like I love doing philosophy, but I also feel like academic philosophy is actively trying to push me out and be like, I'm toxic, please don't stay. And, you know, I've had people say to my face, what you do is not philosophy, and it's really hard when you're like, well, this, you know, I've been trained undergrad, master's, PhD, all in philosophy. And then someone is like, but you're not doing it right. And I'm just like, I hear you, but also that doesn't make sense <laughs> in my like internal understanding of what philosophy mm-hmm. means. Yeah. And that's why I purposely like reached out to other people who like the tagline of philosophy casting call is featuring underrepresented philosophers yeah, finding that space really helped me solidify my sense of belonging in a way as a philosopher and the idea that I could participate in a culture and an ecosystem of doing philosophy differently. And that was so, so, so important. And also what you're saying about accessibility, like you're meaning it in terms of showing everyone that Philosophy is maybe not some esoteric practice that is only done by the few who are coded as quote-unquote smart by society. But for me, it was also an accessible piece in terms of disability. Definitely. So, I mean, I am disabled. I have a chronic illness. Sometimes I cannot engage. I cannot read. I can't even watch TV. And listening to audiobooks and podcasts has been a huge part of how I feel part of a larger world, how I cope with my symptoms, and speaking to other friends who either are neuroatypical or have dyslexia or have other chronic illnesses, like sometimes podcasting is so important to do that. And I do believe that investing in that form is also a way of making scholarship more accessible and of valorizing or saying, hey, this isn't a valid way of engaging with knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that, yes, having podcasting go through peer review, I think that's a great idea. But for me, hand in hand with having developing peer review structures, I think we should start by openly citing podcasts when we write our articles or things like that. Like I'm listening to a lot of podcasts right now about long COVID that engage with people with long COVID or people working on long COVID right now. And that happens like maybe two years before any article of like a sociologist will have interrogated these people and written an academic paper on the reception of long COVID or the experience of long COVID. And I have access to that in podcasting form almost live. And I think that that is something that we should integrate within our ecosystem of what happens in scholarship. I guess I had a question for both of you. Like, Do you think about your personas on the podcast as a professional persona or has it shaped your professional persona outside or
1: yeah oh that's a good that's a good question i so this this ties into a lot of things to think about so let me let me try and piece all these this together that i don't think that i i consciously did and maybe this has to do just like with the way i came to podcasting that i never really had a moment to think about it you know i didn't really think about the significance was I what I was doing. I just sort of went in. Here I am asking some questions and you know chatting with philosophers. We'll see what shakes out. Uh, but I do think, and you know, maybe this is a bit of a sidebar, but I think it'll it'll circle back around. That especially listening to the proto version of the podcast or the one I did five years ago in my master's degree, and now listening to episodes I'm recording four or five years into the PhD, I can definitely hear a difference in myself and in the way I present. And this, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways, and this just is a positive thing. You know, my, like, my knowledge base has grown. I think I feel I'm a lot more confident engaging with philosophy and with philosophers. But it, it also just ends up functioning as sort of a strange window into into how academic philosophy has changed me. Uh, and this is something I think I have, you know, I have some anxieties about, full disclosure, that, you know, I didn't come from, and I, do, I don't come from an academic background, this wasn't a career I think I saw as like actually possible for myself for a really long time. And, and so I didn't. And I, I think in a lot of ways, I still don't identify myself as an academic philosopher, as a professional academic. But then I can, like, I can hear it in these episodes. And so, so the episodes sort of end up functioning or sort of preserving a trajectory where like the words I use change. And, and I start to hear a person in them that, you know, like I think is me. I don't feel like I'm faking it or putting something on, but there's times where I, I don't fully recognize that person who's speaking. So I guess to to actually answer your question, you know, I don't I haven't adopted, I don't consciously adopt a professional persona for the podcast, but you know, maybe a professional persona has sort of adopted me. Uh, and I don't know if if that's through doing the podcast or just through through participating in this profession. But I think the podcast is a, is an interesting record for it. Anyways, that's that's my answer.
0: I wanted to mention something that Christina Van Dyke said in one of the conversations that I recorded and edited for the Extending New Narratives podcast. So part of our method for these those interviews is to like spend some time also talking about the scholar's experience working on underrepresented people in the history of philosophy. So we talk about like the figures they work on for a little while. And then we also talk about like their experience as scholars working on underrepresented figures. And one thing that Christina said that I think is like so valuable and I like want every person in philosophy to hear this and take it to heart is that like by giving herself permission and paraphrasing here but like basically the point was by giving herself permission to like be herself in academic philosophy she became a better philosopher you know and like was actually better at these professional goals and was able to like be a better mentor and be a better teacher by modeling for people that there is room to be yourself if in this in this world where sometimes it feels like there's not so i think i strive to approach professional projects in that spirit
2: yeah, I think for me, it was definitely freeing and a kind of reclaiming process to do the podcast. And as a bit of background, like I was homeschooled all through until university. And then I went to this tiny university where like the ratio to like, professors was very small and I had very human interactions with my professors and was really encouraged to be like, if you find it interesting, then it's worth pursuing as a research topic. Um, And then I moved to the UK and it was a very different culture. And yeah, I went through my PhD and then I kind of had like my rebel self inside being like, but this is not what I want to be doing. Like there must be something there. So I feel like I gave myself permission to not be professional like, not be a completely terrible person, <laughs> just, you know, but, like... Yeah. Not, yeah, not, like, to be yeah. unprofessional. Have to be unprofessional. But, like, yeah. And I find that, also, I have two other podcasts. One of them is, like, reading fiction by underrepresented authors. And one of them is a The Magic <laughs> recap of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> <laughs> so um <laughs> I find that doing those and they all of my three podcasts are very different tones and I'm the same person like behind all of that and mm-hmm. I feel like I'm authentic in all of those podcasts and having that experience has really reinforced this idea as you're saying I want to be here and I also want to be able to say that I am who I am without apologizing and how do I create that environment and when you find out like there are people like you who like are doing similar things I'm like we're none of us alone feeling that way we're a lot of us feeling that way but like we need to connect
1: yeah and I think like both in you know get into some of the content i guess of the podcast that the extending your narratives podcast right talking to as olivia said scholars about their process and how they came to work on the figures that they were talking about in the podcast these underrepresented or understudied figures i think often reveals that we all go through these things where we you know we're working on one thing and that doesn't feel entirely satisfying or you love something that you're working on maybe a more canonical or traditional figure And you also want more. And there's like a different part of yourself that is responding or being pulled in some other directions. There's so many different ways to sort of actualize what you want to do and what you're interested in and in philosophy. Um, And that can be working on different figures, working on different themes, changing direction, broadening your interest. Right? Um, Again, you know, a real benefit of the conversations. I think it's just being able to explore these things.
0: And like Haley said, like, I'm so much harder on myself in the editing process than I am on any guests. And when I first started podcasting, I was not an interviewer. I was simply producing. So I was like behind the scenes from an audience member's perspective, like giving suggestions and prompting the interviewer to ask certain questions. And then I was doing the editing and it was so much easier to just like have a process and execute it and be like, this is done. And then when it was me, I was like, oh my God, what? am I doing like this sounds horrible <laughs> I can't put this out into the world um but the practice of putting that stuff out into the world even if you feel self-conscious about how you sound is really valuable and has helped me with my writing and has helped me with presenting my work at conferences to just be like you know what I am never going to be perfect in this this goal this ideal that I have in mind is not achievable and it's not only not achievable for me it's like simply not a real thing um and what's important is being active and putting myself out there so that I can have a conversation and be a part of the profession in a way that I would would be impossible, obviously, if I weren't to put myself out there. And what I was gonna say before was that I feel like I constantly surprise myself in the way that I act in interviews. And I don't mean that where I'm like, wow, that was really smart, Olivia, but I'm just like, there she goes again don't know what she's thinking. <laughs> she's talking. She's going. And that's just how what I do and I've had to be like, you know what? You're going to say weird things that you didn't plan to say and then you can either edit them out or leave them in. And um accepting that about myself has helped me accept that about myself in other professional contexts. You know, when I ask a question, it might go off the rails. Maybe it'll be a good question. Maybe not. And that's just like how my mind works and i've become a lot more comfortable with that through the process of podcasting and it's helped me um in other professional settings
2: but you'll know how to make it a question and not a comment (laughs)
0: that's right you gotta circle that yeah the
2: thing i do i did
1: it already in our our episode all the time where i'm like i have like three things to say to you here are like 14 things and so actually at the end of the day, here are the four questions I just asked you. Can you answer all of those, please? <laughs> so I do think it's been a real it's been a really good exercise, right? In in actually figuring out what your question is. It's impossible for the guest, the interviewee, right, to answer four questions that you just asked them all once. And it's also not a fun listening yeah. experience for Definitely.
2: an audience. Right? I feel like it trains me in like communication in a way that's analogous to teaching. Because when you're teaching as well, you're like, okay, who is my audience? You know, are they all philosophy majors? Or I've taught lots of classes where they were electives. So I had engineers and primary school teachers and lots of people who weren't used to doing philosophy. So I'm like, okay, how do I present this content with specific pedagogical goals? Like, what do I want them to take away? And I feel like doing podcasting like that and also the process of hearing yourself back and editing, what kind of questions do I ask as an interviewer? Do I give sufficient space for people to have time to respond, et cetera? Like that really shapes you in terms of like, okay, how, what it, does it mean to communicate about philosophy or like to do philosophy? And yeah, it, so it's all interwoven. All of that is like within mm-hmm. my practice. And I think that the the content or the theme maybe of
1: both of our our sets of podcasts also exemplifies this. I think I I, a thing that comes up a lot, I talk about this a lot, so I've, I've said this before on other episodes of our podcast, but I a thing that comes up almost constantly about the subject of whoever our my interviewee is talking about is that they didn't do philosophy in the way that we have traditionally mm-hmm. done philosophy, right? Like a, my favorite little anecdote, I guess, is is I was talking to uh, Sergio about Sarwana and she, she talked about how she did philosophy while she was cooking a me and like how she found philosophy in the process of cooking. I mean, that's just so true to, I think how a lot of us, right? Like this is how we come to philosophy and how we think about philosophy. You know, it's cliche that your best thoughts come to you in the shower, also, so much of how I find inspiration for what I think about philosophically and how, what shapes, again, the way I read texts that comes to me while I'm doing things in my day-to-day life when I'm actually not sitting at my desk and like thinking really hard about stuff. And so it's great, you know, to, to both, to hear researchers talk about doing this, but also then to hear about historical figures doing something, doing philosophy like this. And then to tie this back to teaching, right. This, I mean, I think for students who are coming to philosophy, who maybe will never go on to philosophy again, I think it's such a wonderful lesson that you when you're cooking your dinner, you can somehow you'd be doing philosophy um, and just depends on kind of the way you're thinking about it, the way that you're like working through those things for yourself.
2: Yeah, if I want my students to remember one thing is that philosophers don't have ideas that, like, drop from the sky or in abstraction. Like, we work with abstraction and theories as, in a way, a method. But that every idea and theory and concept, like, came about because of, like, real people in real, like, socio-historical political situations dealing with the constraints of their time trying to solve problems or think about what it is to exist as human beings, and like, for example, we can say like, "What is goodness?" We like that is a philosophical idea that has transcended millennia. But like, really, like Plato thinking about goodness within his very context is different than like Sor Juana thinking about that is different. Yeah. No, I yeah. think that, and that's I think a point that is often, or I, I feel like it's often
1: missed or or overlooked right that you can describe maybe this is because we're all like analytic conceptual thinkers right but you can describe you can delimit these methods but the delimitation of the methods does not thereby mean you are stuck with one once you've picked yeah you can you can mix and match you can combine
0: um well I think of it as like a painting or something where it's like you have multiple colors that you could use but not only that you have like you can use a palette knife you know, like you can use your rag to wipe around the paint on the canvas. You can use spray paint, like you can find little tiny pebbles and like affix them to the surface. Like you have a bunch of tools that you can use in the pursuit of one project. And like they are distinct in a way, but they also blend together. And I think the
2: key to that mm-hmm. is it's a tool, right? The methods is a tool often we're like the methods are like the way that our work is legitimized like what methods did mm-hmm. you use like are these acceptable methods are these antiquated methods or these experimental methods but really they are they're a tool like obviously they it's not just writing in our diary for ourselves like we do our work so it is intelligible to other people so we can participate in a community of scholars so methods do serve that purpose but again how do they serve that purpose and can we recognize when they're no longer serving us?
0: So Elena, where can people find you to learn more about your work, your podcast projects?
2: Yeah, I have a personal website at www.elenagotiermemorial.com. So it's long, but it's my name. So people will have to live with it. And otherwise, you can listen to my philosophy podcast called Philosophy Casting Call. There are two full seasons out, and season three is currently under production. If you are interested in being a guest, please email me at philosophycastingcallpod at gmail.com. And I also host two other podcasts, so I have a book review podcast of books by underrepresented authors called Bookshelf Remix, and a Gilmore Girls deep dive review podcast called Women of Questionable Morals, which I co-host with my friend Soraya Emanuel. And, uh, oh yes, I have one more event, which is on the 12th of November at 6 p.m. UK time. So... Please check because Daylight Savings is different in both North America and the UK. So on the 12th of November (laughs) at 6 p.m. UK time, I will be hosting a workshop on podcasting a scholarship with Jen Scuro from Malloy College, Eva Sprecher from University College London, and Rebecca Gray from Nonprofit being studio and that will just be a great conversation about for disabled people talking about what podcasts mean to us and how we use podcasts in our research in our outreach and in our activism so it's completely free it's part of the being human festival and it is online so you can join from anywhere in the
0: world as long as you check your time zones yes yes <laughs> With careful Um, preparation, you can join from anywhere. anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Olivia, do you want to tell us how we can reach you? Yeah, you can learn more about my work at my personal website, which is oliviabranscom.com, just my first and last name. Can't promise it'll be updated super frequently, but I do my best to keep it at least accurate to what I have going on. Um, And then in addition to... My um, extending new narratives in history philosophy podcast involvement. I'm also a producer for the podcast called How to Read. So Haley, yeah, how can people find you and your work? Where can they find where and how?
1: So I do also I do have to a person you. <laughs> uh, you cannot find me anywhere. I am unfindable. Uh, I am a hidden. Hidden treasure. No, he I is an alias <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not really Haley Brennan, um, but I do do my philosophy under the name of Haley Brennan. Uh, and you can you can find me on my personal website, which I I do also try and keep updated, um, is Haley Brennan my full name net. I obviously also co-host and co-produce this podcast, so you can find other episodes. Our, our little blurb is in is in our or outro so you can you can hear all about how to find more new narratives episodes if you keep listening. Uh, the only other thing I think I'll plug is just that for I guess the philosophers in in the audience, the philosophers who are listening along, you can't tune into Elena's workshop. The we Olivia and I are and Elena as well are participating in an APA teaching hub session at the Montreal Eastern APA. That's upcoming in January 2023, um, called Podcasting as Scholarship slash Podcasting as Philosophical Pedagogy, uh, with Jennifer Scarrow and Ellie Anderson as well. Um, so if you want to hear more of the three of us, plus some other people talking about the process of podcasting, and you have an APA membership, and you're gonna be in Montreal in the cold. Uh, first week of January, come by.
0: I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that because I was thinking another thing I wanted to say is just um, if you can't make it to any of these workshops, but you just want to talk podcasting and you're going to be at the Eastern, or for me, I'm also going to be at the Pacific APA in 2023, I believe, just, yeah, um, look me slash us up. It would be really fun to chat with other people connected in some ways with philosophy and podcasting and we'll be, we'll be there. Yeah.
1: That's yeah. Also my email, I think probably all of our emails are on our websites, but if you have questions or yeah, just want to talk about podcasting or anything that we talked about in this episode, shoot one or all of us
0: an email. And we will hop on a three to four way phone call with you. (laughs)
2: Let's <laughs> we'll figure out all our and time not zones. record
0: it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you for listening to new voices in philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the extending new narratives in the history of Philosophy project. The music you hear is 17th century female composer. Elizabeth-Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D Major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.